economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us today, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institution and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. Okay, so we got a lot of interesting macroeconomic things going on right now. By the time this podcast rolled out, they probably will have raised the ceiling one way or the other because they always do. So we've got a rising debt ceiling, rising spending in a given year with a $3.5 trillion package on the table from the Biden regime, an increase in taxes to help pay for that spending in theory. And then lastly, and maybe right up there with importance, is a pinch on inflation like we haven't seen in a number of years, such that the Federal Reserve is going to be needing to raise the interest rates at some point um, to keep inflation in check is what would be the argument. So just a lot of things going on. Peter, what's your take on some of that? Yeah. So Russ, this is something that politicians have been kicking down the road for basically my whole life now. This has been going on. The last time we ran a balanced year budget was under Bill Clinton. And so, you know, before the year 2000, we're talking and since the year 2000, especially since the Iraq and Afghanistan wars picked up, the debt has the deficit has been you know very positive. In other words, we're you know going into debt each year, more and more debt, increasing amounts. So the debt is there, and it's also growing, and by a faster rate every year. And let's be careful with debt and deficit. So we've got the debt is the amount of accumulated money that we owe over the years because we've ran a deficit each year. So it's kind of like a family who might have some student loan debt, some credit card debt, maybe they bought a house, they've got some house debt. And so they're sitting there with $100,000 worth of debt overall between all of those places. And this year they make $100,000 between the two young couple uh, that are both working and they still take on a little more credit card debt this year. They put on another 13,000 in some way, shape or form. And so their debt rises from 100,000 to 113,000. That's kind of what's going on with the relationship with the government. We continue to pile on, not have enough taxes to pay our bills year after year after year. And now we're looking at $29 trillion was the gross debt, debt clock. Yeah, that that's was our, our total debt. That's our total debt in the United States. Now, that, that's a little bit of a, well, there's little nuances to that that I think are important. One is that part of that debt is one arm of the government owing money to the other arm of the government. And so that's called intra-governmental debt. And so it's like one's an asset for one and a liability for the other. So a lot of times we can take that out of the equation, which is $6 trillion. So now we're down to $23 trillion, which happens to be our gross domestic product, which is the, if we add up every American's income in the nation, it's a basically $23 trillion. So going back to my young couple analogy, the couple has $100,000 worth of debt, but they're making $100,000 worth of income, which isn't completely fair because it's not the government's money. It's actually right. all of us individually. But so bear with me. There's some limitations to that analogy. 
So then we're down to this 23 trillion. And so the old saying was, well, we just kind of owe other Americans though, right? This is like rich Americans who own the government bonds. And so the government taxes some people and then pays the money back to another American. Well, one thing that was of rising significance over the last 30, 40 years has been how much debt has been owed, owned by foreigners. That turns out to be about $7 trillion. So we sometimes have this, I would say, unfound fear that, oh, we owe China and China owns all our debt. What are we going to do? Oh, woe is me. When really, we're the ones holding the cards. I mean, if we go to war with China, you think we're going to pay the debt back? So, I mean, it's like we can tell them to fly a kite if we had to. So we're really in the power position. They're the ones that took on risk taking us on with the potential for conflict down the road. So anyway, foreigners of that 23 trillion, then foreigners hold about 7 trillion, which leaves Americans holding about 16 trillion is held by the general public, which could be corporations, by the way, which corporations are owned by people. So this all boils back down to people, ultimately, whether it's through a shareholder relationship with corporations or whether it's individual households. So yes. let's talk about, I want to dispel this idea that debt is okay. And you're, you're not claiming this, Russ, right. but it's commonly used phrase that the debt's okay because we owe it to ourselves. It's no big deal. This is the problem with that argument. You have to ask yourself the question, okay, what happens if we don't pay that debt back? Well, the first thing is a lot of people, including retirees, people, especially retirees, have invested in like government debt because this is considered basically a, a risk-free asset. So first off, it hurts a lot of people, not just rich people, though some, but also just ordinary retirees who have followed the standard financial advice over the last 20 or 30 years, they're going to take kind of a, a big, you know, painful surprise. The other problem, and so that's one, but you might say, okay, it's, you know, I'm willing to do that, but that's fine. The other problem is if we don't pay back our debt, people stop being willing to borrow from us uh, in the future, just like a private organization. If a private organization says, hey, I'm going to borrow money from you and pay it back or your friends and they don't pay it back. You're not going to lend to them anymore. That's a big problem for the U.S. government. We tend to need loaned funds when we're you know, in a war or if you know, we're trying to counter depressions and recessions, things like that. That's usually the time where debt is justified. You know, even classic liberals throughout history have said you know, sometimes you have to run a debt in moments of crisis, like the School of Salamanca, for example, famously. Some of the first classic liberal economists basically said this is the appropriate time to have debt. If no one's going to lend to you, you don't have that option anymore. And so we can't just say, well, we owe it to ourselves because it's no big deal. Because if we stop paying it, U.S. citizens and foreign citizens are not going to be interested in lending money to the government anymore. Yeah. And, and the market response to that is no different than maybe a private sector response in that our interest rates are going to rise dramatically. So probably some of the most recent cases that you might be familiar with listeners is uh, Greece and uh, Venezuela. So as countries start to be more and more risky, like, oh, are they really going to be able to pull this off? Or what kind of fiscal policy are they doing? You know, even in the case of the United States, I think there starts to be question marks of, well, what's tomorrow going to look like? I want a higher rate of return to buy that U.S. government bond. I want a higher rate of return for that Greece, uh, Greek bond. Um, and so as that interest rate climbs, then the fraction of our government spending that represents interest payments rises. And that's essentially where, you know, they talk about the country going bankrupt. Uh, by the way, I'm not, I don't think we're there yet. I think we got lots of things there are potential things to do to correct for that. But that is certainly where bankruptcy comes from is when your obligations become more than what you can do tax collections. And it's just not sustainable because we're 
Uh, what we currently do in a sense is rob Peter to pay Paul. We're taking from future generations by taking on a debt today, more debt than we are taking from the future generations. And we, we hope that they're making lots of money and they're very productive and we have a awesome economic growth, but those forecasts are pretty sensitive to that. Yeah. And anybody who has a, a mortgage can start to realize what's going on here. You've got a certain payment on your mortgage, right? And the point of that payment is that over 40 years or 30 years, 20 years, whatever you've got your mortgage payment set up as, you're able to chip away at the principal while covering the interest. That's basically how a normal mortgage payment is set up. If that payment, if you could lower that, if you could set it to be lower and lower and lower, what you would find is eventually your payment wouldn't be enough to tackle the interest anymore. And that's when, you know, that's why, why, for example, a bank gives you a payment. Why not just let you pay whatever you want each month for 40 years or something like that? It's because if you pay little enough, you actually never even conquer the interest. It's just going to grow. Your debt's going to get bigger and bigger. The problem exists in government too. Government spending can only be paid for three ways. And this is it. Taxes. And so ultimately taxation, debts, and monetary policy, printing money. These are the three methods. There's no other tool the government has to pay back debt. And so the first one we can knock off is like a, an option is debt. You really can't pay for debt with debt, right? <laughs> and so if we ever get to the point where the interest on our debt is so high that the government basically isn't even making enough money to cover that interest, well, they're going to have to start covering it some other way. Obviously, taking on debt's not going to do this. This is a short-term solution because you just grow your interest payment in the future. The next route then is taxes. And so we could maybe start to raise taxes. But the problem with taxes is we have the idea of the Laffer curve. Russ, can you explain the Laffer curve? So we get to a point where if we raise taxes, tax rates enough, nobody wants to do any work. So imagine if tax rates, just to push it to the extreme, were 100%. Who's going to work for 100%? It's basically charity, but it's even worse than charity because charity, you care where your funds are going. Here, it's out of your control. Some government bureaucrat takes your money for the time you go in. So you would probably choose not to work or you'd start to work off the books, right? So we see this in a lot of uh, different countries with governments that are questionable with their policies that we call it the informal market or black market, whatever you want to do. You're just not reporting your income, right? So which isn't much different than a 13-year-old mowing my lawn for $20 and paying cash, that income's not being claimed, right? So that that's, that's the direction that many of these economies head eventually. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to be collecting the tax revenue that they think they are when they charge rates that are high enough to cause people to change their mind about how they want to work or if they want to work or if they want to do legal work. Those are all part of the Laffer curve argument. And so in the good old United States of America, believe it or not, we had tax rates in the 70% range, mm -hmm. 74, I think was the highest bracket. Yep. Um, at that time, there was a lot of loopholes that in tax write-offs that a lot of people really didn't pay that rate. Mm -hmm. So it was almost more of a, a show or a sign yeah. of like, hey, we tax the rich. And, and you know, yeah. because the stated rate was out there and maybe most people didn't understand all the complexities of the write-offs at the time. Yeah, well, that's a great example of when the Laffer curve was really in effect yeah. because the tax rate was so high that people invested resources in finding loopholes. Yeah. And so even though the tax rate was high, the revenue started to decline with that yeah. high tax rate. That's why Reaganomics, you know, at least the part of it that involved cutting taxes worked for some time right. because he was actually able to increase tax revenue, Ronald Reagan, when he lowered the taxes yeah. because people stopped yeah, investing in the tax loopholes. shelters and yeah. things like that. Stop with the loopholes, bring more people into legal work. Yeah. All of those things contribute to tax revenues climbing, even though tax rates are falling. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the, if you're on that side of the Laffer curve, that's possible. Otherwise, the general thought, which is 
kind of naive, but understandable if you don't study this stuff is that if you need more tax revenue, you raise tax rates. Well, that's not always the case. And so the Laffer curve is definitely insightful in that regard and something we need to be careful of here in the United States as we push for, or as some politicians push for higher and higher rates. Yeah. So we have our, our two, our three ways of paying back debt, debt to pay back debt, which again, doesn't work. If you really want to push it to the extreme and say, well, why not? It's because like someone's going to notice and stop lending to you. You can't pay it. Like it'd be like if you constantly were paying off credit card debts with other credit cards. Yeah. And I eventually to, the company's not going to lend I wanted to, to add one more insight that I hadn't thought of in quite the same way, but listeners, some of you might remember back in the pre-financial crisis of 2008, they were coming up with some crazy loans, right. like stated income loans, interest only loans. And really what the government does right now is it what would be an interest only loan. We are not paying down the debt. We haven't been paying down the debt mm-hmm. for 40 years, basically. It's only been going up. So we're essentially taking an interest-only approach. And so the difference, we have very short-term notes. Usually the, lo- the longest term is generally around 10 years. There's a few longer-term instruments, but not many. So most of the debt that we have is being recycled. A lot of one-year treasury notes, three-year treasury notes but we just keep issuing those notes as they come due. So we are paying debt with that Mm -hmm. and we're essentially having an interest only. And this again is the problem today that confronts us is we're finally having some inflation creep up. How much of that is transitory? How much of that is permanent? We've talked about in different podcasts, but if that interest rate climbs from, if they've been able to get away with one to two, somewhere between one and 2% for a long period of time, if all of a sudden that's four and five and six and 7%, that starts to substantially change the way what the government's spending money on. They're all of a sudden spending a lot more money on interest, which seems kind of foolish in hindsight. Like, why are we paying interest? Just like a young couple who gets into credit card debt and they're like, gosh, I'm I'm paying 30% interest and I'm not making a dent in this, in this uh, credit card debt. Um, So it's, it's uh, something to take seriously. Yeah. So uh, I think Russ is exactly right to bring up the inflation point because we have our our three methods, the debt, which we said, you know, can't be the final solution taxes, which you can run out of the ability to raise tax revenue. If you hit that point in the Laffer curve, the last way is printing money. That's the final way that the government can basically tackle debt and they print new dollars and they use those new dollars to pay back the debt. But the problem with this is there's a Laffer curve for how much money you know, printing money can give. Okay. And this sounds like a great cliffhanger. Well, let's uh, bring the monetary side of the equation into this discussion in just a bit. We'll hold it there. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governments, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom, justice, and its impact on human flourishing. We have a high school event coming up uh, that has a nationwide call. We've partnered up with the Foundation for Economic Education and bringing in some great speakers like TK Coleman and Dr. Jim Gortney. And the students will be participating in our new PPE League event. That is Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, where high school minds compete and flourish. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. 
All right, time to get back to the cliffhanger here. Peter was just going to explain how our government is going to get out of the pickle that they're in by printing money. Everybody gets free money. Is it something like that, Peter? Well, maybe the opposite of that, right? (laughs) Uh, So we we started off or we we led into the break with the comment that like there's three ways government can pay down debt, that they can reduce the deficit each year or that they can chip away at the debt. The two ways are through taxes or three ways rather, through taxes, which we said are limited by what we call the Laffer curve in the first part. Taking on more debt, which is limited by the fact that people who issue debt don't want to give you debt to pay down debt, because that's (laughs) a bad idea. And the last one is monetary policy, and so the government can print money. The problem with printing money, it can help the government pay off debt, but at some point people actually start to expect the amount of money you're printing. And when they expect the amount of money you're printing to go up, that causes inflation. And so then each dollar that you print actually becomes worthless. And so you can actually reach a point where you're printing so much money so quickly that the value of the dollar has totally diminished. So by the time you print that new dollar off, it actually costs more for you to print the dollar than the dollar is worth. And it's also raising the interest, as Russ mentioned, pushing the interest rate up, which makes your debt service even higher. Yeah, so one of the largest monetary gifts the Wharton Institute ever received was around, what was it, $160 trillion. Unfortunately, it was Zimbabwe dollars. Uh, (laughs) And so a a person that I met on a a trip had donated the original bills. So I literally have three bills in my office. One is a $100 trillion note. The other is a $50 trillion note. And a ten trillion dollar note, and that's what governments have done. And 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 you might you might see this pattern here. It's like okay, we have a, a country where the spending is run out of like control. The people are fleeing the country because taxes are so high. So there's your Laffer curve. The monetary situation gets very bad. They start to inflate their currency and print more dollars dollars and cents. Eventually, you actually run out of these three ways to pay your debt. It becomes impossible. Again, these are the only three channels, and they can all run out. If that happens, if you get to the point where you don't have any channels left to pay back your debt, the only option left is to not pay back your debtors, that the people have lent you money. And if that happens, I, that, that's bankruptcy, right? That is a country going bankrupt. And this has happened historically. It's going on in Venezuela right now. It's happened historically to countries like Zimbabwe, where they ran into the trillions of dollars of printing. Germany. Uh, yeah, Weimar Germany, Germany before, uh, the, I think, in the 30s. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that, this is something that has happened, has happened to great countries and does happen to countries. It's, it's possible for the U.S. to go bankrupt. And Rome, we learned in our book club. That's right. Uh, yeah. But I didn't know there was a financial crisis basically going on there. So it even goes back a couple thousand years. This is not a, a recent innovation. Well, since we brought up the, the coin and stuff, Luke, you had a question about the some sort of trillion dollar. Yeah, so I, was, I saw some a news article this morning, actually, about a potential platinum trillion dollar coin that can be minted how would that work yeah so this is basically wrong like that <laughs> like it, it's actually not something that's legal though of course they could argue it's legal even, even though it's not and so the constitution gives the u.s government the right to coin money and so that means produce a coin of a certain value using metal that the government has and sending it out there and so the idea is let's coin this trillion dollar coin the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve can basically use that money and lend and loans to the Treasury so that, that the government can continue to uh, basically spend despite you know the debt. So without raising the debt ceiling. And so it's it's not a workaround for the debt, and everybody acknowledges this. It's a workaround for the law that requires us to raise the debt ceiling. Right. So it's the a debt ceiling angle. Right? The reason this is a lie is because the language of the constitution is pretty clear that you can coin money, you can't make a token of money. In other words, when you produce money, it has to be based on 
something of like equal value to that thing. And so a platinum token is worth to the government what the platinum token is worth. And so however much platinum. The intrinsic value. Yeah. In, in order for the government to produce a $1 trillion platinum token, they would have to have $1 trillion worth of platinum. And, you know, every dollar that the U.S. government spends, you know, in order to get the platinum is one less dollar that they can use the platinum to, you know, basically lend to the government. And so this isn't really like a realistic, it's actually more, I, I would say most serious people think that this is a joke. Of course, the government could declare it legal. And if this were declared legal, it would lead to the same effects as printing a bunch of money. It leads to inflation and these other things. So it isn't the, oh, Justin, yeah, we haven't heard from you for a while on this podcast. <laughs> Listener, sorry, I had to yeah. throw that little joke out. Justin wasn't on the first half because he had a little presentation of our PPE major to do. So I was, I was here. I just couldn't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was going to But isn't the response to the smooth brain trillion dollar coin proposal just like, well, I have a better idea. What about a $2 trillion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which sounds like Milton Friedman's argument. Of, why don't we raise the minimum wage to $100 an and, and to be fair, there's like two camps here. One camp says this will solve problems. The other camp is, well, this will help us bypass the Congress. And like the bypass the Congress people say, no, this is just like it's will to bypass Congress. Then we don't have to worry about the law right now. But there are some people who think this is an actual solution. Those people right. don't understand the things that we went through over the first half and the second half of the podcast. That it is ultimately such human door. nature to look for free money. Yes. Like it is so classic, right? I mean, when I was 18 years old, it was the get rich, buying real estate with no money down. I mean, it, we're just so attracted to that easy money solution. It's kind of amazing. And let me summarize. So every year that we have a deficit, we add to the debt. At some point, the interest on debt could become so large in theory that we can't actually pay it with taxes, monetary policy, or by taking on additional lending. If that happens, if that interest grows to that point, there's no actual way to pay off the debt. It is not possible. And just to be clear, listeners, we're, we're not the alarmists that say this is going to happen no, next no. year, five years, whatever. We're just talking in theory. This only, has yeah, only really can. happened. Yeah, it it can, has really right? happened, though, to other countries, but I'm not saying that it's right around the corner. I don't want to be alarmist. Yes, for I, and I agree States, with you, Ross. So. Yeah. Yeah. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's note also that what you were talking about is paying the interest on the debt, mm-hmm. right? That's independently of whether our debtors actually call those debts. Right. And so that's another way that a uh, disaster can happen too. And yes. then if you look at who actually holds those debts, you could think, well, what? Are there any, what would be in the incentives for any of our debtors to call those debts. And then that can add another wrinkle into the analysis. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, as long as we don't default, they don't have any legal means to call the debt. They can't just say, oh, pay me my million dollars now or trillion dollars or whatever it is. But if there's a default, then I think that's when you get into calling. But the calling is really a moot point, too. They just take a haircut is what we call well, it in but the business. But even, even if people who hold the debt start to try to sell their debt to others, which you yeah. know, there are legal channels to do that. Right. Well, that, the problem with that is then it increases the supply of U.S. debt, yeah. which means that like it's going to be harder and harder for the government to make money by issuing debt because the interest rates are going It's up, not so. much different than the bank selling your bad debt right. to a collector. That's so exactly right. You owe the the bank $20,000, they sell it to a collector for 3000 depending on how likely you are to pay it back anyway. And they just want to wash their hands of it. And so now the collector starts calling you. And then ultimately, yeah. if you declare bankruptcy, that was the risk that the collector took on. Yeah. But it is transferable. So Luke, Nate, did you have any questions on this? What does it look like when we get to this point of no return? It's ugly. 
Venezuela is probably the best thing to look at. It's mass departure of people. And a lot of those people are the most productive people in the economy. So Colombia has been lucky to get a lot of people coming across their border that are pretty productive, entrepreneurial, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I think the exodus of people is a real ugly feature to it. Riding in the streets. So again, Venezuela, well, there's just pictures of people, you know, looting, bombing, fire. They're upset. They're don't know who to turn to. So yeah, it's violence, it's death and exodus of people. It's pretty ugly. Yeah. What's the best action a person could take? We got our, our OU president came from this. So he's from Zimbabwe originally. And he, part of the reason his family left was due to the turmoil in Zimbabwe going on. So we were fortunate to get President Reggie's here at Ottawa University because of this exact thing going on. And, and the one other thing that you might have heard of is that the dollar is like the, the world's reserve currency. In other words, it's a currency that can be used in any other, other country to basically pay down debts and things like that. There's a lot of aspects of it, but not all of them, them are important. But the point is, a lot of the value of the dollar depends on the fact that it's the world's reserve currency. So amidst all the inflation and everything that would be happening in this case, there's also the added problem of, well, if the dollar starts going out of control because of inflation, because we're trying to pay back the debt, people aren't going to continue to use it as the reserve currency in the world. So there's going to be less control that the U.S. has over foreign affairs. The value of the dollar is going to fall even more. It really does look like uh, basically uh, the deterioration of society. I, I mean, it's it, it means that no one is going to offer a loan to the United States government if we ever need it. It means that income taxes are already going to be very high to pay back the debt. It means that your money's losing worth every day. It really does hurt savers, especially the poor. I got one thing that Peter might push back on me because uh, I think we differ on this, and that is the independence of the Fed here in the United States. I hope, and I think, my money would be on our leaders of the Fed, who are some of my fellow economists that we might not see eye to eye on things, but that they would have the courage that Paul Volcker had in the early 80s to put the squeeze on the economy, squeeze out the inflation, and basically drive the economy into recession. And before we get to the point where we are really hopeless. So in Zimbabwe's example, the federal government, so let's say Biden and Congress, and the monetary policy were all one. So then it would be like Biden saying, I want to print off some money, and, and then they print off money. And so that is not the way we have it in the United States. I think the reason I brought up Peter is that he sometimes questions whether it's truly independent and he he raises good points but I, I i hope that our federal reserve leaders would have the courage to do what volcker did if this inflation does start to go beyond five percent six percent eight percent whatever that we won't go down that monetary path in the united states you should specifically say what volcker did so volcker took contractionary monetary policy basically sucked money out of the system instead of what had been going on, which was easy money. And we've been doing easy money in the United States for 20 plus years, uh, going back to uh, Greenspan who took over after Volcker, the Volcker regime. And so, and raised the interest rates. Yes. Uh, yeah. And raising the interest rates is through, the rising of the interest rates is actually a function of contract, contracting the money supply because there's not as many bonds out there and so that's how interest rates actually go up is through them not having easy money policy. And so just the opposite has happened since the financial crisis. And of course, before that, by taking on these debts, we kept the, the supply of money flowing and interest rates relatively low. 
Yeah. And so something to keep in mind with that is like, you know, inflation can cause problems. Deflation also causes problems for some people. And it's not the deflation actually that causes the problem. The deflation is a sign of a problem. And so because Volcker basically had to do this to get the economy back on track, well, what happens when you pull money out is money becomes a little bit more valuable. And that means that especially debtors are hurt by that because as money gets pulled out, that means your nominal wages are going to go down. In other words, companies are going to have to pay people less and less because money is worth more and more. Uh, and so if your nominal wages goes down and your, your personal debt doesn't change, that means you're spending more of your paycheck paying down your debt. And so that really hurts people. But notice it's not the deflation that caused that. The, the deflation is, you know, basically runs along with the fact that before Volcker, the can was being kicked down the road. Economic destruction was being kind of put at bay a little bit. And, you know, we continually push it off. Then when it finally reached Volcker and he had to make the decision, like, no, we have to like pay due, pay our dues now, all that destruction came out. And so as long as we kicked that, that can down the road, we get basically a worse and worse situation for ourselves in that respect. Yeah. And I have no problem with deflation. There, there's the, I guess, no, yeah, monetary, no the monetary policy folks believe in more active policy, which gives them power. Then we get sure. into the whole you know, what they're all about or what drives them. And so that they certainly wield uh, more power when there's active monetary policy. But this goes way back to Milton Friedman saying we need some sort of fixed policy so that we take that action out of their hands or we're uh, fixed to gold, which we got off officially fully off the gold standard in the Nixon era in the uh, 71 or so was 74 was the final kickoff, I think. But yeah. so all these things just circle around, keep circling around. But to speak to your point, Russ, on Fed independence, I, I am a little uh, less optimistic than you, like, like you mentioned. I, I don't particularly believe that the Fed is independent of political interests. I'm not 100% sure on that, but what I am 100% sure about is I know that the members of the Fed are not independent of their own interests. And so this was like Buchanan's primary insight into, uh, James Buchanan's primary insight into economics, is that even though we can treat government actors like they are interested in the well-being of the entire country, there's really no reason to do that. We should probably treat them the same way that we treat every other economic actor, which is that they care about their own interests. And so to me, even if the Fed is like politically independent, the members still have an incentive to do the use policy that will forward their own interests. I don't know that's really any better than, you know, political dependence. It's more of like personal gain. And so when I see like you know, Janet Yellen say things that are really shocking from an economist, like, oh, the minimum wage doesn't necessarily cause unemployment. When the vast majority, first off, economic theory says otherwise, which should be enough, but 90% of papers published on the topic also say it. And that's not like an exaggeration. That's actually a fact. It's like, well, do I believe that Janet Yellen, who has said in the past it does cause unemployment, do I believe she's changed her position because the evidence has changed? Well, the evidence hasn't changed. No, I think Janet Yellen has an interest in supporting a specific political route, a personal interest in it. And so I think she's willing to abandon what she knows to be true in order to, you know, succeed. Yeah. So I, I, that, that's the, my fear with the Fed is I, I, I don't care if they are, you know, interested in the Democrat or Republican party, but I don't think that they're interested in the American people either. Well, in the past two weeks, two Fed presidents have resigned <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. due to some, uh, in both cases, it was like, oh, I'm resigning because of my help. And I'm resigning to, you know, it's an early retirement. I'd like to do other things for a little while. Never mind the fact that I, it looks like I've been doing some some shady stuff recently. Yeah. Ethical. Um, so that should just add some fuel to Peter's argument <clears throat> that these, these people are people. 
Well, to wrap up this episode, we didn't bring much of a faith component, even though this one's ripe with it, especially after the book we just went through. So the borrower is slave to the lender. You know, this United States borrowing, I think a lot about what we talked about today is some some biblical themes there on debts and debt forgiveness and <laughs> for all that sort of thing. But I think this is a good place to, to bring it to a close. Hopefully we've at least raised some awareness of the issues that are out there and yeah. that it's not all doom and gloom tomorrow, but it's uh, it's sliding that way. The direction we're heading is not healthy. Yeah. And nothing about our, you know, American society. We talk about American exceptionalism. Maybe there's something to American exceptionalism, but what's not, what there isn't, we do not have an exception to the laws of economics. <laughs> there are three ways to pay the debt back and they can all run out. Yeah. And so ultimately we, even though Russ is right, I'm not an alarmist either. I, I think we're a while away. It's, there's nothing about the U.S. that makes us unable to default and for our society to fall apart. It's yeah. just, there's nothing about our country that allows us to be exceptions to that. Yeah. And we're so young at this point, yeah. 200 years old. Yeah. You read the history books of 500 year old civilizations, yep. 220 year old civilizations, the Mayans, the Romans, the whatever. So, all right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Be sure to pass word along to your friends if you like what you hear and you think they might like it too. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.